through Mark this morning. And as a uh, background chapter or additional uh, passage of Scripture to look at, we're going to look at Psalm 51. Um, this is a Psalm of David after he sinned uh, greatly and, and publicly. Um, it, was a, it was a sin that was well known among the, among the Israelites. Um, we think of David often as being a man of God, a man after God's own heart, and he was that. But he also made some great failures and blunders. And uh, the context of this, I think, is helpful as we, we talk through uh, what it looks like uh, for the unforgivable sin and how the Lord has forgive, forgiven us uh, many times. So let's stand for the reading of the word, Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that your words may be justified. So, I'm sorry, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalm of David that shows us that you are good and a, and a forgiving God, even in the midst of, of our faults and failures and our sins against you. Father, would you open the word this morning as, as Pastor Nick comes and and open scripture to us. Lord, I pray that you would bless his words and the meditations of his heart, that it would be of benefit to, the, to your children this morning. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. If you will, turn with me, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Like Anthony just said, we're going to continue preaching through and looking at Mark's gospel. 
And I want to remind you of where we came from last week, because we're dealing with a pretty hard text this morning. I will say that despite it being a hard text, I'm really excited about studying this passage. It was just such a blessing to me, uh, especially these just past these couple weeks of digging into this. Uh, it's rare that when you're reading and studying God's word, that when you're studying God's word every day, that you learn something new, something that's helpful uh, to your building your knowledge, even having your mind changed. And that's what happened to me this morning is I had my mind changed about some uh, text. And I think it's a, in such a way that really helps. And I just want to go ahead and start off with this to remind us where we were at last week. We have these two parallel texts, this sandwiching structure of people, Jesus's own family, who rejected him thinking that he's out of his mind, crazy. And then paralleled right alongside that, we have people who hated the Lord Jesus and wanted to do everything they could to point them and focus them to be against Jesus and to imbibe in their own hatred of him. And when we read this, however we hear this warning that we're going to be reading this morning, know that if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you feel conviction of sin, if you hate your sin and want to be found in Christ, this text will be an encouragement to your soul. The way this text functioned is the same way the text last week functioned. That just as the rebuke to his family who called him a lunatic was the very part of Scripture where we got to focus on how followers of Christ are identified as God's family, adoption came from that text that we got to study. And the same thing's true this morning. That we should receive, if you love the Lord Jesus, you should be comforted by it. And so that we really understand this text this morning, I'm going to read starting at verse 20 of chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he, and Jesus is referring to himself here, may plunder, rob his, Satan's house Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean 
spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would comfort those who need to be comforted, that they would not walk away from here thinking that they do not know your love or that you do not love them. And I pray for those who are comfortable in their sin that you would make them uncomfortable, even frightened by this text. And that they would see that to the degree that they hate their sin and love you and, and desire to be found in you, that you would find comfort, give them comfort. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Like I said, this is a difficult text. But we can't really choose to ignore it. Because Jesus starts off in verse 28 saying, Truly I say to you. He pauses. And for the very first time in Mark's gospel, he pauses to say, Let me speak clearly and with authority. We've heard rumors of his authority. We've seen that he has said, I have authority to cast out demons. I have authority to teach God's truth. But we haven't seen like an inside look into a specific teaching yet. And here Jesus uses a common phrase that he uses. He says, truly, I say to you. See, Jesus has a different privilege than what I have. When I preach, if I preach things that are in accordance with God's word, true things, you might respond with amen. That is true. I understand that. That is helpful. But you know what I can't say? I cannot say I'm about to speak true, infallible truth that comes from God himself. I can't preface what I'm saying before I say it in that way. So we have to take this seriously. And the text this morning is a warning. And Jesus' goal is to frighten the Pharisees. We have to be really clear about that before we go into this. His goal is to frighten the Pharisees. They have committed a grave sin. They've done something that if they are really professing their faith, in the statement that Jesus has a demon and that he's just some higher order of demon that gives commands to the lower level demons, if they really believe that, they have no hope in this life. But we have to be really careful at this point. We have to be very careful that we don't apply scripture the wrong way, that we don't read scripture and take it out of context and twist it. 
My goal this morning is not to lighten Jesus's words, not to soften the hard punches that he throws, but I want to make sure that if he's throwing a punch, that it's landing in the right spot. This text should be a comfort to those who fear, to those who fear God, to those who hate their sin and love the Lord Jesus. And it should be a warning, especially us as we gather every morning, hearing more and more about Jesus Christ, that if we reject Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, that there's no hope. Because Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And we have to take that with the utmost seriousness. And to kind of walk this fine line, I, I want us to think about this one question. What makes the unforgivable sin unforgivable? Think about that question. What makes the unforgivable sin unforgivable? And the first thing that we can learn is what, it's, what makes it not unforgivable. He starts off with saying, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Even the blasphemy, blasphemies, that's wrong, blasphemies, there we go, that he may, that whatever blasphemies you may utter, all sins. What is all sins here? All sins, the type of sins that are forgivable, the type of sins that do not preclude you from salvation, all sins are forgivable. What kinds of sins are these? In this, we have to kind of explore Scripture and see what does all of Scripture say about all sins and what kinds of sins are forgivable. The first thing I think we need to recognize is that all sin can refer to the full number of our sins. Past, present, and future. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that, and if I can pull this off of this table, let's see if I can get there. I've never licked my finger before to pull up paper, but I've seen people do it. Maybe it takes two licks. There we go. It takes two licks for anyone who's never done that before. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is to say that Jesus forgives the particular sins of his particular people, each and every one of them. And I don't need, know if I need to say this, but in case you're wondering, all sins does not just refer to the full number of them, but it refers to all kinds of sins. Whatever category, you go, go to the Ten Commandments, see the Ten Categories for the different types of sins people can commit. A short list of running through the Old Testament, we see that Abraham was forgiven of his lies. Samson, of his sexual immorality. Rahab, of her prostitution and idol worship. 
David in Psalm 51 of murder. And just to be clear here, David, when he's referring to the type of sin that he committed, he had a planned out murder attempt that was worked out over the course of months and months. He planned it out, he executed it, he covered up with lies, and he covered up his adultery. All kinds of sins, if you look throughout the Bible, are forgiven. And if you doubt this, doubt maybe even for us. What about us, the church at Evergreen? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And listen to how it starts off. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Another word for revilers, by the way, blasphemy. Or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty scary, right? when you think about all the different types of sins and the fact that God is good and God is just and he'll punish all sins, all kinds of sins, the sins of thought, word, and deed. If that's true, we're all without hope in this world, aren't we? But that's why Paul does not end there. He says, but you, who? You were washed. You were sanctified, made holy, that word. You were justified. That word justified means that God looks at us and he's declared these sinners, these sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, he's declared them righteous, reconciled to himself. Why? Why were they washed, sanctified, and justified? They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This pertains to the full number of our sins. The types of sins that are forgivable, all sins, the full quantity, and also the quality of it, no matter the kind. And lest I should just pass over this, this doesn't refer to just any single particular people group, ethnic group. It refers to this offer of forgiveness of all the number and of every sort is offered to all kinds of people. Acts 17 verse 30 says that God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 10 verse 43 says everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Romans 10, verse 13, and I know I'm just rattling these off. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul there is quoting the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. All kinds of people, all their sins. And lastly, All here, the all sins that will be forgiven, the children of men, 
In other words, human beings from every tribe, tongue, all men, the all sins here also refers to every degree of sin. You know, we preaching through the gospel of Mark and preaching through this, uh, the gospels or, or preaching through the Bible often protects us from pastors' hobby horses, the things that they're super passionate about. But you can't be completely protected from that. This is one of mine. Have you ever heard someone say something along the lines of all sins are equal in God's eyes? That my sin is just as bad as your sin. I honestly, I have no idea where people get that. I have no idea, especially just looking at scripture, why that is such a ubiquitous, all-pervasive idea in our culture among the church. That all sins, I need that line. Uh, all sins are equal. Maybe this is a logical deduction that they get to, saying that, well, all sins, as the, our shorter catechism rightly says, question 84 says that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and the next. And maybe there's this equation that goes on in the human mind that says, because all sins are worthy of God's wrath and curse, that means that all sins are equal. That's simply not true. Right before that, the confession rightly says some sins, and this is Shorter Catechism, question 83, uh, if you want to look this up and study this on your own. It says that some, some sins in themselves, and by reason of several, several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. In other words, first-degree murder the taking of a human life plant that is planned and premeditated is worse than being negligent and running your car into someone. Both result in the ending of a human life. Both are guilty of taking the image of God away from them, one through negligence, but one through planned murder. But just like common sense dictates to us that one is worse than the other, so we find that in God's word. And I'm not going to belabor the point other than to say that John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus is talking to Pilate. Pilate is about to condemn Jesus to death, to be murdered, an innocent man. And he tells Pilate, he doesn't condone his sin. He doesn't say, hey, you're okay, you're absolved of guilt. But he does say that the sin of those who handed me over to you have committed the worse sin. Judas, knowing who Jesus was, being with him, seeing his miracles, knowing that he is the Messiah, but just not liking where he is going and taking his group of men. He committed a worse sin than probably any one of us can even fathom being able to commit. See, when we talk about sin, notice that the Bible does not, when we're sharing the gospel with people, or when we're speaking the gospel to ourselves, the Bible doesn't ever give us an answer to say, you don't need to feel bad about your sin. Sin is not as bad as you think it is. You're not as bad as the other guy. You're all okay. No. The hope that Jesus gives his people here is that all sins will be forgiven. Of who? 
we see in the text those who sit around at the feet of Jesus, who love him, who identify with him. If you're a tax collector, former, by the way, former tax collector, and you've bribed people, you've practiced extortion, you have forgiveness if you follow Jesus. If you have doubts and you're wrestling with conviction of sin, if you follow Jesus, guess what? Your doubts will not keep you out of the kingdom of God. Jesus loves those who follow him. He bears up with our weaknesses. And that's why Jesus says, truly, I say to you, all will be forgiven. The sons of men. And this is just for your information. If you want to know, well, what sorts of sins are worse than the other? How do you do that math? The larger catechism, question 151, is really extremely helpful in uh, doing that, seeing what sorts of things does God in Scripture look at and what makes it things worse than other sins. Things like being in authority, using your authority to abuse others. The same sin, if I commit it, is going to be judged by God worse than the sin of someone who's a church member. Why? Because of the position I have. That's a weighty thing to hear. But then he says, and he clarifies, even the blasphemies, they, whatever they may blaspheme. And I know I changed that a little bit, but there's a repetition there. In this ESV, it says, whatever they are that they may utter. I think that's what the ESV says. But Jesus here is repeating himself. He says, whatever blasphemies, they may blaspheme. Every category, including where he's going to go here now of the type of sin that is called the unforgivable sin. And before we move on, once again, I just want to reiterate Where is the weight of Scripture? What does Scripture tell us from beginning to end of where our focus should be? It should be on the fact that God is a forgiving God. He is merciful. Isaiah 55 paints the picture of hungering and thirst. And he says, why don't you come to me? Don't you know I'll feed you? Let the unrighteous man forsake his ways and the wicked forsake his thoughts, knowing that God will have compassion on him. That's good news. That's where our focus needs to be, but oftentimes we kind of act like Adam and Eve. We look at the garden and all God's provision, but the thing that we fixate on is the one thing that's out of place. The one thing, that one tree that's not given to us to eat. That's the thing we fixate on. And The bad thing is that if you're a sensitive soul, as I know some of you are, that's going to be your fixation. Don't let it be. Don't let this be the thing that you fixate on. Fixate your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who came and died to save sinners. We already have been told in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, that sinners are the type of people he came to save. So if you're in the category of sinner, if you have a lot of sins, if you've committed all kinds of sins, which we all have, and you've committed even the worst of sins, no matter who you are, notice I just covered all four of those things there, 
No matter who you are, if you desire salvation and you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving it, go to him and you have it. Whatever blasphemies they may utter. And here we learn what makes the unforgivable sin unforgivable. We have here that, but the the blasphemies towards the Holy Spirit have no forgiveness into eternity. And I know I'm reading it slightly differently. But what they have instead is guilt. Guilt for their sins forever. They've committed an eternal sin. What makes the sin, unforgivable sin unforgivable? Well, you know, a lot of people, we need to first figure out what it is. We're given a really clear definition of it, even though there's been lots of different interpretations of this sin. We're told here what type it is, a blasphemy. And what is a blasphemy? If you remember from a few weeks ago, or about probably about a month ago, is the crime of speaking, speaking against And it's used in a lot of different varieties, but it's like using a four-letter curse word at someone. If you use a four-letter filthy word towards someone, you are blaspheming them. If you deride, mock, that's the sin here. And when it's directed towards God, which is the way that we use this word blasphemy in English, when you use mocking speech towards God, it takes on this religious connotation in the English language, that we have a particular word for that, blasphemy, offensive speech, vile speech, cursing, slander, mockery. God does not like rumors and slander spread about him. And he makes that really clear to us, and we can see the category of this sin, the type of sin is, of that blasphemy, it fits into the third commandment. You will not Hold, the Lord says that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So that's the category. And the sentence here is a guilty sentence that he gives. But we know that people are forgiven of blasphemies. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he said he was a former blasphemer. So fortunately, and not only that, but the uh, line Jesus said that whatever blasphemies they may utter, we know that all third commandment violations are not unforgivable. That should be really good news to all of us because we've all broken all 10 of the commandments. What defines this one particular sin that Jesus says is unforgivable is not the degree, it's not the number, it's not the kind, it's who it is against. It's said to be against the Holy Spirit, and in case you're unclear about this being a sin of saying, we're told and very clearly in verse 30 that because Jesus said this, he gave this warning because They were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Specifically, in verse 22, they called him the prince of demons, empowered by the prince of demons. They were slandering the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think we can uh, get, is, is this a mere saying? Is this just a stray word, an idle word that the Pharisees say? Is that why they're condemned? Because they said this one phrase one time? Well, I think it might be helpful at this point to look at a parallel text in the other direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And this one you can write down if you want encouragement. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, verse 3, sorry. Chapter 12, verse 3. I've repeated this enough times. Paul says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the, in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Anathema, cursed by God is that word. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In both of these texts, what's being said here? Is it saying, do we, you know, when as Christians, does everyone who professes the name of Christ merely, are we to say that, oh, you know what? The fact that they uttered those words means that they are Christians. No, that's not the case. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that this profession is sincere, made with knowledge and sincerity and truth that when they say Jesus is Lord, no one can say that truly and honestly unless the Spirit gives them the power to see who Jesus is. They feel their heart drawn to love the Lord Jesus. No one can do those things unless the Holy Spirit has acted upon you. See, we have to remember when we're looking at what the unforgivable sin and seeing this, that it's a type of blasphemy, that what defines it is who it is against. That's the thing that makes it unforgivable. We have to remember the context. Who is committing the unforgivable sin in this context? Well, it's the Pharisees. It's the scribes, the Bible experts, people who should know better. People who, in Mark chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, have already started to plan Jesus' assassination. They were called out on the fact that Jesus has authority. They were presented with a miracle demonstrating the Holy Spirit bearing testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And their response was to go and plan his murder with the Herodians. The Pharisees already had grieved Jesus in verse 6 says that, or verse 4 rather, that Jesus was already grieved and angered by their what? Their hardness of heart. Their mental dullness. The fact that they were suppressing the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony right in front of them, something they knew they were suppressing in Romans 1 language, they were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. See, when we get to verse 22 and when they call Jesus empowered by the prince of demons, not all, but some of them there were making a profession of their faith. 
They were making their sincere, heartfelt profession with words of what they thought Jesus was. And Jesus gives them the sternest warning in all of Scripture, saying that if you believe what you just said, you have no hope. You have no hope. What is the whole role of the Holy Spirit? Why is it a sin against the Holy Spirit if it's not a, about degrees of sinfulness? It refers to the Holy Spirit's very role. What is his role? He gives eyes to see, ears to hear. That's why this sin is talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8. It says that, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then to have fallen away. And it says about them in verse 7, it is their end to be burned. This is a punishment that extends both in this life and to the next. Hence why Jesus says, they don't have forgiveness, but what they have is the guilt. And they have the guilt not just of one sin, not just of the unforgivable sin. That's not why they're going to hell. They're going to hell because that one sin was rejecting the only means they had of salvation. The only one. Their sins would then be retained and they would have guilt for all eternity. That's the part that should cause fear is to know that people can be in church they can see testimony of the holy spirit hear god's word read see the holy spirit transform a human life bringing them from darkness into light turning from their sins seeing that problem that power and saying i understand who's at work here god and i hate him I want to murder the Lord of glory. I said it's not true of all the people there. Not all the Pharisees. This is a warning he's issuing. And the reason why I say that is because of how often both Jesus and the apostles refer to the knowledge of those who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 23 verse 34 is probably the most popular one. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Acts 22, Acts chapter 2, verses 22, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. The Holy Spirit's work. He is the person who's directly offended. He's the person whose works are at work in the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing witness to him that he is the Son of God who came to save sinners. And he says, as you yourselves know, God bore witness to him with all these things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God 
made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now listen, listen to the response. Is, is Peter about to say, therefore all your sins are unforgivable because of that? No. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Who's at work here? It's the Holy Spirit. He's giving them conviction of sin. The fact that they sinned against Jesus, but not according to knowledge. For then Peter says, and the rest of the apostles say to them, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, he says to the crowd, he says, and now brothers, and listen, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did, as you did, so also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, this, that this Christ would suffer, thus was fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Just a quick review here. Who is, what is the unforgivable sin? What makes it so bad? It's a, who it is against. It's against the Holy Spirit and his testimony. And the scary thing is, is that someone might have eyes to see that Jesus is God. That there might be people in this church who understand theology really, really well. Who know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know what the sad thing is? If they won't turn. They love their sin more. They don't hate their sin they choose to hate God. And that's a scary place to be. And concerning this sin, it's often been said, and I think it's very true, that if you fear that you've committed this sin, that's the telltale sign that you haven't committed it. If you fear it, that you've committed it, you haven't done it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has cut you to the heart. You've been convicted of your sin. And hear these words that I alluded to earlier. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul said this. Paul said, I thank him who has given me strength. This is chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, one of the 12 disciples, or one of the 12 apostles as might be the case. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. For all those who commit apostasy, who leave this church, maybe commit a gross sexual immorality and have to be excommunicated, you know what our prayer for them is? is they did not know the man that they were rejecting. They did not know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. They heard a lot about him, but they didn't know that he forgives sinners, that they had not had their eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. If they had seen them, we pray that the case is, is that they don't know who they are rejecting. 
Romans chapter 5, this is the truth. If you are afraid, I think the hope here is that in looking at this, look how much we're diving in and we're getting to see the nature of sin. And the focal point of this text, and I hope the focal point that you hear, is that the Lord Jesus Christ forgives sinners. That's why he came. And your only hope of heaven is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you reject the testimony of God that he is who he says he is, that he's able to forgive your sins, if you reject that, no hope remains. But we should have courage to go to him, especially if we are weak and doubting. Why? Because Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the people are basically good, for the ungodly. That's who he died for. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that, and while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified, forgiven, declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Listen to this logic. For if we were en- while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, brought near to him, and by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, now that we are part of the family of God, now that we can pray to the Heavenly Father as our Father, we've been given that privilege. How much more than Paul's answer is, shall we be saved in this life now that we have reconciliation? That's good news. Let's take advantage of our privilege and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you care to save sinners, that you made a way for us to be saved, that we may know how good our God is, that no heights nor depths, nor principalities or powers, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that has been poured out for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I do pray that you would help ease those who doubt, that you would help them and everyone into this room, in this room, that they would see that they have no hope in life or in death unless they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us from keeping our eyes on ourselves, that we wouldn't fixate on our sins that yes, we would be convicted by it, be called to repentance in turn, but Lord, that we wouldn't linger too long looking at our own souls and how the depths of our depravity, that we know the number and you know them better. We know something of the kinds of sins that we've broken, but you know all the kinds of sins that we've broken, that you know the full degree of the sins that we have committed, that some of us are more vile than others, that we've done things in our past that are more worthy of your judgment, and yet you died to save the ungodly. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and his love and the forgiveness that is offered to all 
who trust in him. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.